This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I never imagined what was going to happen. Somebody had so much disregard for human life, they just threw him away like a sack of garbage. I was just in shock when that happened and trying to find out and run through my mind, was there anybody that wants to see him dead? It's a mystery to us. I mean, this whole incident is very, very strange and very odd. It's something that you wouldn't normally see. It's just so much unknown about Flint's case. I just want whoever murdered Flint to pay for what they done. Off the side of a rural highway 30 miles south of Jackson, Mississippi, a blazing fire draws the attention of passing motorists. By the time firefighters reach the scene, they find what's left of a truck, burned beyond recognition. There's no driver or any passengers inside. The only clue to what happened is on the driver's side panel, and it leads investigators to a trail of blood on a nearby bridge and a gruesome discovery in the river below. I'm Steve French, and this is Unsolved Mysteries, Highway Homicide. This all happened out in the county. It's a very rural area, approximately five, six miles outside the little town of Mendenhall, Mississippi. And it's just nice, good old country folks that live out in this area. In 2009, Brian Buckley was a criminal investigator and lieutenant with the Simpson County Sheriff's Department. The first homicide case of his career began on August 3rd, when a 911 call reported a truck fire on the side of a road. A passerby was coming down Highway 13 when they noticed the vehicle was burning on the side of the highway. This is a two-mile straightaway wooded area, no houses around, two bridges. The vehicle was down a little bluff, probably about eight to 10 feet deep. It was on fire. The Mendenhall Volunteer Fire Department rushes to the scene and quickly extinguishes the blaze. The vehicle was completely burnt. They had the wrecker pull the vehicle out of the ravine. They searched the vehicle and there's no person in the vehicle, no victims around. They determined it was arson while they was processing the scene due to burn patterns or patterns on the vehicle. It was pretty obvious that it was set on fire and then pushed down into the ditch. So at that time, they knew it was staged. A large amount of accelerant was used to burn the truck, which suggests someone wanted to completely incinerate the vehicle, perhaps to conceal evidence of another crime. 
there was four what appeared to be bullet holes in the driver's side door area. Crime scene unit actually recovered three bullets from the vehicle. Two bullets were found in the door and one bullet was found in the extra door behind the driver's door. One bullet is missing. The truck is registered to a local chicken farmer and volunteer firefighter named Flint Lee. Flint is 44 years old, married, and the last time anyone saw him was over 24 hours earlier when he had dinner with a cousin. His wife, Gail Mullins, remembers when she first got the news about her husband's truck. It was at night. It was after I'd got home from work. My sister called me and asked me, had I heard that they found Flint's truck on fire on 13? And I said, no. I figured he had wrecked it and it caught on fire, but they couldn't find him. And I figured he had got hurt. And I was scared that he had stumbled into the creek down there because it was right by the creek where the truck was. And this was probably around midnight when I found out. And it wasn't but a few minutes, the law pulled up. They said they had found the truck and it was on fire down there on 13 by a bridge and that it had bullet holes in it. I was in shock, I think, because they kept asking me about the bullet holes and I kept telling them there wasn't any bullet holes in the truck. And they said, well, there's bullet holes in it and it was on fire. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. We had no idea what was going on at this point in time. We was actually looking for Flint because we didn't know if Flint had burnt his vehicle and shot up his vehicle himself. We didn't know what had went on. And after they left, I went down there on 13 where the truck was on fire at. It was me and my sister, my brother-in-law, my brother, and we were looking for Flint. They went up on the bridge. We walked the roads. We left and went to his house. We went to, back to my house. We looked everywhere we could. It was late and it was dark, and everybody said to go home, and we would meet back at 6 o'clock the next morning. Well, I went back down there about 5.30, and I was looking and hollering for Flint. I really figured he was out hiding somewhere to scare me because he would do things like that. When Gail and Flint first met, Flint was divorced and had two daughters and a son. I was a single mother with two kids, and he worked at a grocery store where I had started working, and we met, and he just seemed like a really kind person, and he was always willing to help somebody, good father, and we just kind of hit it off. I got into the fire department about December of 2005. That's where I first met a guy named Flint Lee. 58-year-old Jim Burnham is Flint's close friend and fellow volunteer firefighter. Flint had a passion for the fire department. We hit it off right away. And that's the thing about Flint. Flint had a way that he would get to know you. The kind of guy that you couldn't help to like, you couldn't help to get to know. And there's no way you could avoid it. I mean, he was just that kind of guy, very outgoing, very open and funny, and, and we hit it off right away. He was a tall, slender guy, very country. He had a bubbling personality. He was a joy to be around. Galen Flint own a small chicken farm along Highway 13 and share a trailer not far from there. But just a week before his truck is found burning on the side of the road, Flint had moved out. 
We were married about five and a half years. I don't know that we were actually in love. I think we were both convenient for each other. We really got along to start with. And then, as most marriages, there was problems that arose. He changed, you know, he went from being, he'll help me do this and help me do that, to not doing that. He just changed. And I know it was the drinking that done it to him. There was no divorce papers filed. There was no talking to any lawyers or anything. I just asked him to leave, and I had hoped he would go get help for his drinking. Gail tells police she hasn't heard from her husband in three or four days. Flint's friend, Jim Burnham, recalls his last phone call with Flint on Sunday, the night before Flint's truck was found in the ravine. He was just wanting somebody to talk to. Of course, at that time, Nim and Gail was not living together. I think that he was basically sleeping in that truck. Neither Gail nor Jim believed Flint would just disappear of his own free will, and he would never shoot up and destroy his own truck. The search for Flint intensifies, and members of the community join in. We had probably 50 people out walking up and down the side of Highway 13 in the general area where the truck was found and a couple miles down the road where his chicken farm was. We had people there searching for Flint. One of the locals who's looking out for Flint is Gail's sister's husband, Charles Earl. On Tuesday afternoon, Charles Earl calls his wife with some shocking news. He had just found Flint's body in the Strong River, just over the side of the bridge on Everett Church Road. When Flint's body was found, my brother-in-law had found it, and he had called my sister. But I was outside the sheriff's department, and I was walking up a hill when I run into my daughter, Misty, and she asked me, did I know? And I told her no, and she said, Mama Flint's body's been found. I turned around and went back in the sheriff's department to find out what was going on. They had found him in the river. He was murdered within days, probably less than a week after we separated. I was just in shock when that happened and trying to find out and run through my mind, was there anybody that wants to see him dead? Flint's murder, it had the county shook up. We hardly ever have any trouble in this general area, especially where this happened. The most you may have would be a theft or maybe a house burglary. And I mean, that was odd. During the autopsy, the coroner finds a single bullet in Flint's body, which hit his upper torso and lodged in his spine. According to the pathologist, the gunshot wound that Flint Lee received would probably have been an instant death. The trajectory that was found in his body would match the angles of the bullets that was recovered in his truck. This means Flint was shot and killed in his truck. Lieutenant Buckley learns Flint had been living in that truck after separating from his wife. It was the best way to keep close watch on the chicken farm they owned. So Flint would go out to their chicken houses, which is on the side of the highway of Highway 13, and at night, he would pull his truck right up to the side of the highway and he would sleep in his truck. That's where we think the actual murder happened was right there in the driveway of his chicken houses. We went out to where he would normally park his truck 
We searched the area and no shell casings was ever found. Nothing was found there at the chicken houses. And so we assumed either they collected their shell casings or may have been using a revolver. After the murder, Flint's body was taken to a bridge less than a mile off Highway 13 and dumped into the Strong River. A trail of blood on the bridge tells the story. When we got to the scene, we got to looking around, and in the middle of the bridge, there was droplets that went on the railing of the bridge, down the bridge, and went to the side. And over the side, there was a couple droplets on the bridge. His body was positioned face down, and his body actually was hung on a log out in the river. It was pretty decomposed. This is the middle of summer, in water, and he possibly had been in the river for two days. It's, it's not very big of a river, maybe 20, 30 yards wide. And I really don't know why somebody would dump the body right there because families go, go to actually go to this bridge and go swimming. Possibly if you didn't know the river, you may have thought that the river would have been deeper and the current may have been stronger to push the body further on down the river. That may be a sign the killer or killers were from out of the area. Was Flint the victim of a random carjacking or robbery that ended in murder? There was a lot of items that was inside of his vehicle that was burnt that, had it been a theft, should have been taken from the vehicle. Like, there was two firearms inside the vehicle that was found that, had it been a robbery, you would have thought they would have took the firearms. Lieutenant Buckley, in his first ever homicide investigation, begins to focus on the family. The family actually became are prime suspects due to the fact that there was family problems. There had been a protection order filed against Flint to stay away from his home and his wife. Flint's wife, Gail, voluntarily submits to be interviewed at the sheriff's department. I don't know how many times I was questioned and polygraphed. That's a feeling, unless you go through it, that's a feeling you can't describe. The people point, they talk, and you can't change people's mind. But the people that know me know what type of person I am, and they know I could never do anything like that. I would never have hurt Flint in any way. All I asked was for Flint to get some help for his drinking, and he didn't think he had a problem. One thing everybody likes to do is shop. Another thing everybody likes to do is save money. What if you were able to do both? Well, now you can with Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members earn cash back on everything that they buy. Rakuten is partnered with over 3,500 stores across every category, beauty, clothing, electronics, home, department stores, pets, you name it. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not be saving while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Shop stores like Macy's, Adidas, Walmart, Bloomingdale's, Urban Outfitters, Blue Mercury. Chances are your favorite store is already there. Here's how it works. The stores pay Rakuten a commission for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the commission with its members. You get paid via check or PayPal quarterly. You can maximize your savings by stacking cash back on top of other deals, like store sales and coupons. Rakuten has 17 million members who are already saving. Why not join them? Membership is free, and it's easy to sign up. Start all your shopping at Rakuten.com or get the Rakuten app to start saving today. Your cash back really adds up with Rakuten. In his many conversations with Flint, Jim Burnham got the distinct impression that there was something more going on with the family than just marital problems. 
I believe they were some family issues in Gail's family. They were some things that were going on at that time leading up to his murder. They were some dislikeness, you might say. As far as who all liked him, I don't really know. He had had altercations with a couple of the family members. I know that him and his brother-in-law had an altercation a couple weeks prior to this. According to Jim Burnham, Gail's brother-in-law, Charles Earl, was bad-mouthing Flint during the search. Then it was Charles Earl who seemed to know exactly where to look for his body. He had went down three, four miles where the Strong River Bridge is and got out of his vehicle and looked over the side of the bridge and Flint's body was straight down. I mean, it was straight over the side of the bridge. I asked him what he was even doing at the bridge because it's kind of off of the highway from where we was the general search was. And he said that he just had a gut feeling to go check the bridge. And when he got out and walked over to the side of the bridge, looked over the bridge, there Flint's body was. Lieutenant Buckley can't help but acknowledge the incredible luck Charles Earl had to find the body so easily when dozens of others had searched and failed. Under the circumstances, it was kind of suspicious. We knew that Gail had, her and Flint had had problems. And it was just kind of odd that he was, you know, off of the main path of where everybody was searching, you know, a mile or so off of the general area of where everybody was searching and just had a gut feeling to look over the side of the bridge. Like I said, that that just sounded kind of odd to us. And we even polygraphed him if he had any involvement in Flint's murder, in which he passed a polygraph. That was his answer, was he just had a gut feeling to go check the side of the bridge. After a thorough investigation, law enforcement cleared Charles Earl of any involvement with Flint's murder. As the search for suspects widens, detectives learned Flint may have been having financial problems. His friend Jim Burnham says Flint's chicken farm was weighing heavy on his mind. He bought the farm a year before he was killed. Prior to that, he worked offshore, and that kept him away from home up to six months out of the year. He needed a change. My sister and her husband had a chicken farm, and he was tired of being gone from home, so he said he wanted a chicken farm. So that's what he done. He got one. But the business venture didn't turn out the way Flint had hoped. Chicken farming drained his bank account, and he confided to friends that he was worried about losing the farm. A couple weeks before he was murdered, went down and he was in his truck, boots hanging out the driver's window. We kind of made a little setup for him at the fire station. We kept going and going at him and just said, look, you don't need to be sleeping in this truck. I mean, it's mosquitoes eating you up. It's humid, it's hot. And he said, well, I... I can't leave the farm. I'm afraid something's going to happen to the farm. Somebody's going to do something. And that was something that, that went on, I believe, all the way up to the time he was murdered. Now, he never went into details about who and what, you know, if there was somebody in particular. But we, I guess, didn't question him too much. I wish a thousand times that I would have asked him, okay, will you tell me who? But we never thought something like this was going to happen. He never talked to me about that. I mean, there was some issues about the farm because it wasn't making a lot of money. I don't know why he was down there in his sleeping in his truck. I mean, he had places to go, but he chose to stay on that farm out there. Like the other leads, Flint's chicken farm is a dead end. 
Throughout the summer and fall, investigators conduct dozens of interviews with family, friends, and neighbors, and come up empty. Water and fire have destroyed almost all of the physical evidence, and the investigation is going nowhere. Then, in the middle of November, Lieutenant Buckley gets a surprising phone call and a possible break in the case. We were contacted by the Rankin County Sheriff's Department and asked if we had any unsolved murders. They told us that they had picked up Christopher Hubbard for old fines. They told us that Hubbard was in his cell and he kept telling detention officers at the jail that he needed to speak to an investigator, that he had something he had to get off his chest. Well, he told the investigator that he had witnessed a murder and that he had to get it off his chest. He was having problems sleeping and eating. He started telling them about what he had witnessed and the details that the investigator was telling me was similar to ours, but he kept giving the location of it being around the Rankin-Smith County line, which is our two neighboring counties. They called me back and told me that they didn't think that it was going to be our murder. Desperate for a lead, Buckley and his partner decide to check out the suspect for themselves. His name is Christopher Hubbard. He's 25 years old. Hubbard's confession reveals details about Flint's murder known only to law enforcement. We interviewed him for several hours, and finally, he started giving details that was pretty much matching up what little bit of evidence we had, bullet holes and describing the scene and so on and so forth, and it started matching up to our crime scene. We took Christopher Hubbard to the area, just to the area of where the chicken houses was, and he identified the chicken houses as where the murder took place. He was given a polygraph test. He was passing all the details that he was given, but he would fail the part about his part in the murder. Christopher Hubbard says he was driving with two acquaintances on Highway 13 when they saw Flynn's truck in front of the chicken farm. According to Hubbard, one of his acquaintances, Roger Gilbert, wanted to steal the truck, and so they stopped. When they got out, went up to the truck, Flint Lee sat up in the seat, and they took off running, and Roger Gilbert started shooting and he had shot Flint and killed him. Christopher Hubbard named Roderick Gilbert as the shooter of Flint Lee. Hubbard tells investigators that he and his accomplices dumped Flint's body in the Strong River and took the truck a couple of miles away to sit overnight behind the home of another acquaintance named Bryce Mills. The next day, they burned the truck in a ditch. When Hubbard's story checks out, Buckley is confident that this is exactly what he needs to solve the first murder case of his career and charge all three men with murder. But there's a problem with the third suspect. He had a rock-solid alibi, and that kind of put a dent in Chris Hubbard's confession. We never figured out why he would have named this a third suspect. We kept telling him that it couldn't have happened because the third suspect had an alibi, but he always stuck to the same story. The fourth suspect, Bryce Mills, is a convicted felon. And while searching his home, police find two pounds of marijuana and a firearm unrelated to the murder. Mills takes a plea deal and cooperates with investigators. He tells them that he knows nothing about the murder, but that he did allow Hubbard and Gilbert to leave a truck behind his home. Mills also stated that the next night, 
He had left his residence and went to Mendenhall down Highway 13, where he seen the same vehicle on the side of the road, and he identified Roderick Gilbert and Christopher Hubbard as being with the vehicle along with their car. He said he drove by them, and when he come back from Mendenhall, he noticed the vehicle on fire down in the ditch on the side of Highway 13. So Bryce Mills actually confirmed parts of Christopher Hubbard's statement. When Roger Gilbert, the alleged shooter, is taken into custody, he immediately stonewalls detectives. He was very hostile. I mean, he, he was very upset about it, and he denied having any involvement with it. But he would not sit down and give us an interview. When we read him his Miranda rights, he then stated that he wanted an attorney. He'd log it up right off the bat. So we was kind of at a standstill with Roger Gilbert. We had Roderick Gilbert charged with murder. We had other evidence that we had found where Roderick Gilbert owned a gun, owned a certain caliber gun that was used in Flint's murder. We conducted search warrants on his vehicle, search warrants on his house. We never found no evidence leading to the murder. We never recovered a firearm that we knew he owned. None of the suspects appear to have known Flint or his family personally. We spent a lot of hours trying to see if there was any connection between the family and these two. And we never could come up with nothing. We had numerous, numerous phone records from the suspects, the family members. There was actually no connection whatsoever to the suspects and the family. News of arrests, a confession, and indictment bring relief to members of the Mendenhall community and Flint's wife, Gail. When I found out that they had made an arrest in Flint's case, I was excited. I don't remember how I found out. I, one of my daughters probably called me and told me. But I was excited about it, and we hoped. We prayed. That hope lasts almost a year leading up to the long-anticipated trial. And then, Christopher Hubbard does an about-face. He recanted his story and told us that he had made it all up. He even took another polygraph and he passed this polygraph where he stated that he had just made this whole story up. Hubbard's confession had been the linchpin of the case. Now investigators are left with nothing. They must drop the charges against Hubbard and Gilbert. Had we went to trial with them based on what little bit of evidence we had besides the confession, there's no way we would have got a conviction. And if they was found not guilty, then we would never be able to try this case again. So we decided just to drop the charges and see if we could come up with more evidence. It was very, very upsetting. The boy that admitted to it, then recanted, I don't know. I don't understand the law enough to know how they can do that. Lieutenant Buckley believes Hubbard and Gilbert are the right suspects but he can't explain how Hubbard was able to pass one polygraph confessing to the crime and then pass a second test recanting the confession. He also finds it difficult to square some of their actions with their stated motive. It's something that you wouldn't normally see. If they was going to steal the truck and the shooting took place, we couldn't understand why wouldn't you just get in your vehicle and leave? Leave him there at the chicken houses where, where this supposedly took place. 
why I go through the chance of getting caught by riding around in his truck or being seen in his truck. We, we couldn't understand that neither. That's still a mystery to us also. I don't know what the motive was. It's just so much unknown about Flint's case. But I don't want anybody arrested if they didn't do it. I just want whoever murdered Flint to pay for what they done. This is the only unsolved case that I have left with my career at the sheriff's office. This one hurts because it was my first one. It's a solvable case. I think we were really, really close with Christopher Hubbard. It's just some holes that we got to fill before we're able to take it to trial. I'd love to see this case through. Finished. I feel like if I hadn't put Flynn out, this would not have happened. The hurt that comes along with this is unbearable sometimes. I hate this happened to Flint, and I pray that they catch who done it. We'll put it in God's hands and let him handle it. I really hope that somebody has been waking up and going to bed with something on their heart that they need to share with somebody that maybe 10 years ago they didn't bother them, but now it has. I really hope that Somebody is asked the question again so they can get this guilt off their heart. That's my hope. And I know there's somebody out there that knows. Somebody knows something that it may not be much information, but it would be enough to point somebody in the right direction. Flint Lee's body was recovered in the Strong River on August 5th, 2009. If you have any information about his murder or the fire that burned his truck, please contact the Simpson County District Attorney's Office at 601-847-1342 or go to unsolved.com. Next on Unsolved Mysteries. It really bothers me that I can't get closure for the family. My fear is that If Butch is still alive, we know that he's got a gun. I know that he's researched where to shoot a human being to kill him. My fear is that somebody will come across Butch and he's not going to like him and, and he's going to use violence. Unsolved Mysteries is a production of Cosgrove Muir Productions and Cadence 13. It is executive produced by Terry Dunmuir and Chris Corcoran. Produced by Lloyd Lockridge, Christine Lennick, Courtney Ennis, Paige Heimson, and Paul Yates. The story producer for this episode was Molly Ryan, and it was edited by Roy Hurst. From Cadence 13, editing, mixing, and mastering by Chris Basil, Andy Jaskowitz, and Bill Schultz. Production support by Sean Cherry and Ian Mont. Artwork and design is by Kirk Courtney. Publicity by Josephina Francis and Hilary Schuff. The original theme music was composed by Gary Malkin and Michael Boyd. Thanks for listening to episode 37 of Unsolved Mysteries.